If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to the New Testament. The book of 1 Peter chapter 5. I'm going to read from verse number 5 down through verse number 10. Let me uh, join Brother Landon in encouraging all of our men that can and will. Please uh, help us out Sunday and be in this men's choir. There's something wonderful that happens every time they sing. I believe it's just God's approval that we have men who have stood and stand. And I believe there's going to be a great blessing that God's going to pour out in our church on Father's Day. Looking forward to that. Summer is upon us. And I know that vacations come and uh, go. But just make sure that you come home whenever you do go. All right? Don't get lost in the way. First Peter chapter 5. Verse number 6 down through verse number 10. I'm going to read from the Amplified Bible. And I will tell you when I go to the next verse so you can keep up. Verse number 6. He said, therefore, humble yourselves. Always pay attention when you read that word in Scripture. Therefore, there's something very important coming up. In light of what he said if you want to take the time to read the first part of First Peter, with all of that being said, this is what you need to know. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Set aside self-righteous pride so that He may exalt you to a place of honor in His service at the appropriate time. Verse number 7, casting all your cares, all your anxieties, all your worries, and all your concerns once and for all on Him, for He cares about you. Underscore that. He cares about you. Man, the King James says, He careth for thee, but the literal translation indicates what this is saying. He cares for you. Amen. I'm thankful that He cares for me. He cares about you with deepest affection and watches over you very carefully. Verse number 8. Be sober, well-balanced, self-disciplined, be alert and cautious at all times that the enemy of yours, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, fiercely hungry, seeking someone to devour. Verse number 9, But resist him, firm in your faith against the attack, rooted, established, immovable. I want to say that again because you need to get the whole uh, import of what he's saying. But resist him, the devil, Be firm in your faith against this attack. Rooted, established, immovable. Knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being experienced by your brothers and sisters throughout the world. You do not suffer alone. Verse 10 said, after you have suffered a little while, The God of all grace, who imparts His blessing and favor 
who called you to his own eternal glory in Christ, will himself complete, confirm, strengthen, and establish you, making you what you ought to be. Amen. What a wonderful passage of scripture to take our text from tonight. And I want to talk to you for a few moments about keys or decisive elements of the victorious life. Decisive, you may be seated, of the victorious life. Everybody said amen. God bless you. You may be seated. It has been my observation in pastoring and dealing with people that it is not so much what you don't know that hurts you, although it can hurt you. What you don't know will hurt you. But I have found that it's what you know that you're not doing that hurts you more. Because if a man knoweth to do good and doeth it not, the Bible said that is sin. That's missing the mark. So we spend a lot of time talking about what we uh, don't know, uh, things about life that we don't understand, and somehow that becomes an excuse for us not doing what we ought to do. But I am more concerned that we know a lot that we're not doing already. I want to remind you of some of those things tonight. When Peter was writing this letter to the New Testament church, he mentions some essential elements to me. They are critical, they're vital of the overcomer's life. If I were to try to categorize them, I would have to call them rules that he lived by. They are uh, acts, undertakings that he had purposed in his own life that he had learned that when these things regulate your life, you will overcome, you will come out victorious. When these elements are part of your daily life and it becomes the law of your life, then those elements will enable you to overcome anything that might come against your spiritual life. He shares some very practical wisdom that is so effective when it is used and utilized. And it is simply the key to a victorious life. These principles or attitudes or codes or values, whatever you want to call them, are critical to the success of my spiritual life. And there are five of them. Interesting, the number five is is representative of of grace. And so uh, I could call this the grace notes of our spiritual journey that we need to make sure are a part of our everyday living. And they're crucial. They're, they're extremely important. They're vital to my experience and my victory. Uh, they're, they're making and breaking points to our spiritual life. If we have them, if we do them, if they're a part of our life, 
then they enable us to rise above any opposition or any attack of the, of the enemy. And understanding the part that they play in our life is so crucial because each one of them represents a part of my spiritual journey and my spiritual life that is critical to my victory. And he begins with verse number six by simply saying that we are to humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God. So number one, write down or put in your mind or your memory bank the word you lie. The reason. It is such a key element to the overcomer's life. The reason being is because pride is such a deadly enemy to all of us. And none of us are exempt from pride. Pride is one of the areas that the devil uses, that he used in the very beginning to undermine mankind in the garden of Eden. It was the lust of the flesh, it was the lust of the eyes, and it was the pride of life that brought down man in the beginning. And it's still one of those elements that brings us down. It lulls us when we're when, when there is pride operating in our life, it has a way of lulling us into a false sense of security that we are okay. And pride promotes my own self-importance. It elevates me to a place that I don't belong. The scripture says that pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It is the precursor to everything that can bring me down. And we are all susceptible to its maladies. God is the one who Peter is mindful of that puts up and takes down. And we don't need to worry about promoting ourselves. If we keep the right attitude and the right spirit in our own life, then God will take care of that promotion for us. We don't have to jockey for a position. We don't have to lobby for God's favor. But when we live in an atmosphere of humility and we understand that there's something in us that is, that, that, that is kin to the old Adam and it's still alive in some way, we may put it down every day, but it can rise up the next day. And so I need to be mindful of my own weaknesses and my own shortcomings. And we must understand that it is not I that's steering the ship, but it is really the hand of God on me that is directing the affairs of my life. And when I leave that order like that, God can bless me. God can elevate me. It's when I take myself out from under that that kind of relationship and I try to promote myself or I get the thinking of myself a little more highly than I ought or I look at someone else and I look uh, in, in some sense down on them because they're not as far along in their spiritual journey or I'm, I'm so much more advanced in my spiritual life than they are. I am putting myself in a very vulnerable place 
If you want God to use you, it begins on your knees and it begins when you put yourself before Him in a sense of humility and in a spirit of humility and you say, not my will, but thy will be done. Amen. None of us got where we are by ourselves, even though there's a lot of people that promote themselves as self-made people. The reality is somebody invested in them somewhere. They just never have stopped to give them credit. It's like the old saying, you don't see a turtle on the fence post without knowing it didn't get there by itself. And all of us in some way in I am is because to look around and realize that the only reason that I am where I am is because Somebody else prayed for me. Somebody else invested in my, somebody else encouraged me. When I was about to lose hope, somebody reached out to me and said, come on, you can do better than that. They, they didn't let go of me. And the reason that I'm here tonight is because somebody had taken the time to care about my soul. So I don't need to get all uppity and, and thinking that I'm better or I, you know, I, our church is better than anybody else's. I, I love to feel that we are have a great church, but I'm here to tell you right now that we're not any better than anybody else is. And when we get to the place that we think that we're above somebody else, we have already set in motion our own downfall. The thing that Peter understood, the, the part of the victorious life, it began when a man humbled himself before the hand of God and let God steer his life rather than man steering his life. Now that's easier said than done because all of us are guilty at times of taking the reins of our life and, and doing what we want to do. And we've all been guilty. We've all been caught with our hand in the cookie jar. Man, there's a part of all of us that has uh, a connection to that old Adam and neither uh, your age or years or anything else in life can exempt you from the temptation that pride often brings into your life. Amen. I am not a child of fate tonight. I am not a child of chance or luck. I am here because the hand of God has been upon me and I don't ever want to come to the place in my spiritual journey that I forget that. You know, some people can live for God so long that they they, they feel like they're doing God a favor by showing up. You know, God ought to be proud that I'm here, that I can teach a Bible study or that I can quote so many verses. I'm sure that we humor God many times in our life when we think of ourselves a little higher than we ought to. I'm not saying that you should go around beating yourself down and beating yourself up, but I am saying that if you want to know the road to victory and overcoming, it begins when you acknowledge your own shortcomings and your own weaknesses and say, God, I cannot make this without your hand upon my life. I cannot live this life unless you empower me to live it. Amen. There is the mighty hand of God that needs to be on all of our lives, and we do not when we, when we live like that, when we live knowing that the hand of God is on our life, 
then we do not resent the experiences that life brings to us when trouble comes or when problems arise or when sickness comes. We do not look at ourselves as being some kind of victim. We understand that the hand of God is on us. And if God wanted this to be there or he wanted it a part of my life, he would not have allowed it to be there if it was not part of his plan. There's something God's trying to teach me through this process. And so I want to stay under his hand. I don't want to rebel against what God is doing. I want to submit myself and I want to humble myself before his mighty hand. Amen. Because it is the mighty hand of God. You when everybody make all the difference in the world. God will elevate you when everybody else is putting you down. Amen. Even when man tries to destroy you. When the hand of God is on you, he cannot, the devil cannot bless or he cannot curse what God has blessed. I don't care how hard he tries. He can go from every advantage point he wants to like Balaam, but he's never going to find the right place to curse a person whose hand, God's hand is on their life. He's never going to find the right opportunity or place to put a hex or a curse on you because when the hand of God is there, it is also a shield over your life that will prevent the enemy from destroying you. And God allows into my life the things that will help make me not destroy me. Amen. Number two. Peter mentions in verse number seven. That we are to cast all of our cares upon him for he careth for you. The word that I want to lodge in your mind tonight is serenity or a calmness to life. A composure to life we're not going through life living in fits and 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 living with a fever all the time you if you understand what i'm saying we're not driven by circumstances i am not driven by the issues of life i'm not driven by despair i'm not driven by fear i'm not driven by doubt but i am understanding that I have an opportunity to unload my burden and cast my cares and and get rid of those worries and put them in the hands of God and let God deal with them in the way he sees fit. You and I need to learn how to get rid of our anxieties and release them into God's care. What stresses you? What's stressing you out right now? What's distressing you right now? You need to figure out a way to get that into the hands of God. Amen. Casting all your care upon Him. We do this with confidence because we know that He careth for you. He careth for me. Here is what we must always be mindful of in this process. Is that the reason... We can do that is because God wants us to do that. He wants our troubles. He wants my worries. He wants my fears. He wants them so he can answer them. He wants them so he can prove to me that they're nothing but shadows and they're nothing but false images, that they cannot destroy you. They can only help make you. Amen. 
Here's what we must always be mindful of in living for God. That God wants you to succeed more than you want to succeed. Amen. How do I know that? Because he careth for you. Interesting. He careth for you. It means that he meddles. The literal translation says or means that he meddles himself in the things that concern you. Anybody know anything about meddling? The word indicates that that's God's relationship to me. When I cast my cares, when I put those worries and I put those fears, then he meddles in my life. He He's concerned about my life. He, the, one translation says that he is, he is concerned. They may not be issues to you and that respect me personally. They may not be issues to you and they may not be problems in you, but they are to me. And because he loves me, he wants to, he, he wants me to put that on him because he knows how to bear that. He knows how to carry that weight and he knows what to do with it. And so he, he encourages me to cast my cares. I love that. Cast my cares upon him because he is concerned. He has respect of my life. He wants me to live in peace. He wants me to live a life of spiritual fulfillment. God wants me to be an overcomer. He wants me to be triumphant. He doesn't want me to be a victim of life's situations and circumstances. The word care is a word that 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 is the result of forethought. You cannot truly care for somebody if you've not thought out the situation. So when the Bible says that he cares for me, God has already thought out my whole life. He's already planned. He knows the end from the beginning. He's, he, he knows the first from the last, the last from the first. He, everything in between. He's alpha and omega and everything that's between. God has already got a plan. He's already got a purpose for my life. And he knows that if I will just release my worries, if I will release my anxieties, if I will let him take control of my fears and my worries, he will make them work for my good. Understanding this is critical to my spiritual life. With the mindset like that and an attitude like that, we can accept any experience that comes to us in life knowing that it's part of God's plan and God can work it for our good. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Somebody said in Jesus' name. The third thing that he mentions is found in verse number 8. He said, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a Roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. The word is vigilance. You and I, if we're going to be overcomers, there has to be a certain soberness to our life. It's not a joke. It's not a plaything. This is for eternity, folks. We're not 
We're not playing games tonight. This may be just another Wednesday night in some people's estimation, but in my spiritual journey, this is part of what's going to make me and help me overcome. I'm not taking any of these things lightly, and I don't want to ever get to the place that I feel like that this doesn't matter. Every day matters with God. And I need a soberness. I need an alertness and a watchfulness. I need to be aware I need to be attentive and careful over the things in my life. The word sober means that I avoid drunkenness. Now, I understand that you and I are probably not going to go get stoned tonight or we're not going to go drink ourselves soft drunk. But I have seen many people get intoxicated on a lot of other things. Pride is one of them. I've seen people get intoxicated on their own abilities or their own giftings and they're so enamored with themselves, they don't need anybody. Amen. We get themselves. Amen. We get intoxicated with life. We think, man, this is good. Man, it couldn't be better right now. Hang around, it could get worse. But there should be nothing in me that feels prideful. I need to be vigilant. I need to be aware that there's an enemy out there that is still looking for a way to knock me off my feet. And he's planning right now. He's conniving. He is trying to work out a plan right now. And the only way that I can remain an overcomer is to stay vigilant and alert. There is not a day that I get up that I feel like I can cruise today. I don't need to be, you know, I, it doesn't matter if I'm serious about living for God today. I, I, I've been doing this for so long, I can put it on autopilot. And a lot of people are living on autopilot when tragedies happen, when wrecks happen. Do you know that according to the Bureau of Statistics, that the greatest number of accidents happen within a mile or two of your home? Why? Because the closer we get to home, the more relaxed we get and the less vigilant we are and the less watchful we are of what's going on around us. And in a moment of carelessness or in a moment of not paying attention... Something happens and a wreck or a tragedy come. What Peter is saying simply is you cannot afford to live one day of your spiritual life without that sense that this could be the day the Lord come. This could be the day that he returned. Or if not, this could be the day that the enemy may come in on my life like a, like, like a flood. And I need to be prepared. I need to be ready for whatever may happen. To live with that mindfulness. Amen. Staying saved. I I, I wrote this down earlier and I hope you understand what I'm saying. I don't have to work to be saved. Salvation is a product of His own grace and mercy. But I will, but it will be a work if I am saved. I don't have to beg God. I don't have to buy salvation. It's free. All I have to do is repent of my sins 
and, and be baptized in the name of Jesus and receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost to experience the gospel message of the new birth experience. That's all for you. Don't have to do anything to get that. But I will tell you this. It will be a work if I am saved because I'm still living in a fleshly tabernacle that every once in a while rises up and shows itself and I have to humble myself. I've got to get back down on my knees and say, God, I'm not as close to you as I thought I was. Something reared its head. An attitude showed up I didn't even know was still alive and I need you to help me put it down. Amen. Now, if that rocks your theology, just hang on to your theology. I may not be talking about you, but I am talking about me. It's it's going to take work for all of us to be saved. We're not going to cruise in to the portals of heaven without having been through a fight because the devil doesn't want us there. And he can never go there. He's going to try to do his best to keep you from enjoying that. And so every day I need to be vigilant. Vigilance is hard to keep up when you're tired and weary. It's hard to pay attention. If you don't believe me, go look in the book of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and look at what happened to the disciples in Gethsemane because they were tired. They slept through one of the most critical moments of their experience and their relationship with him because they were tired. He's praying and sweating great drops of blood, not a stone throw away from them, and they're snoring. They're having dreams of of sheep and whatever else. And it can happen to any of us. We get weary. And Paul said, don't be weary in well-doing. Don't ever get tired of living by faith. Don't ever get tired of having to get up every day and put your confidence and trust in one that you cannot see, but you know is real and he's there and he's proven himself over and over again. Don't ever get tired of living by faith. Amen. Vigilance. Everybody say vigilance. Put all the efforts that you can into living for God. There's no time to coast. Amen. Vigilance. The fourth thing that he mentioned is found in verse number nine. And he said, when we, we should resist the devil, we should resist the enemy. Amen. Everybody say resist. The word resist means to battle, to fight, to struggle, to defy, to repel, to oppose, to challenge, to contest, to counterattack. That's what Peter had in mind when he said we are to resist him. We are to put up a fight. The devil wants to destroy me. I need to say that again. He wants to destroy your life. And he will never quit working on that agenda until the rapture takes place. He is ever seeking whom he may devour and... and. And for a soul to be saved, it's going to require that I am totally engaged in living for God. Amen. Everybody say totally engaged. That means on Monday, not just on Sunday. That means on Tuesday, not just on Wednesday. It means living seven days a week, 24 hours a day, 
with your mind made up that your Lord is the one you're living for and no one else. Understanding that you must resist evil. Somebody said, I can resist anything but temptation. Well, you need to get over that. You need to figure out a way to defeat that because it will destroy you. Now, listen to me. I'm not advocating you getting into a fist fight with the devil. I'm going to tell you how you resist the devil. And it's so simple, it will blow your mind. But Peter said it in the text, and you don't even recognize it until you look back at it. But the way that we overcome and the way that we resist is by standing steadfast in the faith. If you want to put the devil in his place, you resist him by being steadfast in the faith. I think I've told you this before, but if you hadn't heard it, I'm going to tell you again. When I was evangelizing, we had come into a place, and man, I'm telling you, it felt like we were we were battling every devil in all of hell. We, I, I had prayed, I had sought the Lord, I had studied, and I mean, it was like a war going on. And I remember coming on the platform on that Sunday night, Service was so bound up and so tied up. There wasn't, I mean, it was so dead in there. It felt like a cemetery. And being the evangelist that I was, I started rebuking the devil. I remember I walked back and forth on that platform in the name of Jesus. I rebuke you, devil. In the name of Jesus, I command you to loose your hold in the name. And, and I did that for about 15 minutes back and forth. And they're singing and church is going on. I'm just walking back and forth, rebuking the devil for everything. And finally, the Lord spoke to me and said, hold on a second. He said, whether you realize it or not, for the last 15 minutes, you've been giving the devil everything he's wanted. That's your attention. The Lord said, if you had spent that last 15 minutes praising me, I would have already broken that yoke that's on this service. I would have already loosed the bands. I would have already sent deliverance. And we are guilty of of doing that many times in life. We go through life resisting and we go through life fighting and we go through life repelling the... But we're not holding on. We're not standing in faith. I want to tell you how to put the devil in his place. Live a consistent life of faith. Live a consistent life of confidence in God. That's the best way in the world to defeat him. I don't have to go through life rebuking him. There are times that you need to rebuke spirits. But I need to spend most of my time praising and magnifying the Lord. And the Lord will rebuke him. The Lord will put him in his place if I will acknowledge and give to the Lord the things that are due to him. So if you want to know how to resist the devil, stand steadfast, consistent in your faith. You remember the story in Acts of the gentleman that tried to rebuke demons out of a guy? And, and, and those demons finally spoke out and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? I'm wondering sometimes if the 
devil doesn't think the same thing about others. They live inconsistent. Oh, they're good people on Sunday. They're great people on Wednesday, but Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, there's another version that shows up. And then they wonder why the enemy can just walk in and trample over and there's no wall of resistance. There's nothing to put him in his place. It's because there's been an inconsistency. The greatest testimony and the greatest power of an overcoming life is a consistent life. No matter where they feel it or not, they're there. No matter whether they feel goosebumps or not, they still worship the Lord. No matter whether anybody's talking in tongues or not, they're still magnifying God because a consistent life is the greatest weapon that you have against your enemy. It will put him in his place. It will set him back on his heels. It will push him away from you and it will give you the liberty that you need to rejoice in the Lord under any circumstance. Amen. The biggest black eye you can give the devil is just be consistent in your walk with God. You don't even have to rebuke him. Your life will rebuke him. Amen. Number five. And this is the most difficult and most uh, misunderstood element of an overcomer's life. And that is understanding the purpose and place of suffering in your life. We are of the opinion that the overcomer doesn't need to suffer. Well, if you really believe that, you need to go talk to Paul. Find out why he had so many troubles in his life. Why he was put in prison so many times and why he was beaten with 39 stripes on so many occasions. Why he was in shipwrecks and in peril. His life was in jeopardy every day. Well, he should be blessed. I mean, he's living for God. He he shouldn't have these troubles. And the reality is suffering is part of the spiritual experience. It's part of the spiritual journey. And when I understand that purpose of suffering and I understand that there's a reason that God lets me go through these things, there's a reason that God allows me to go through these valleys so that they can produce something in my life that nothing else will produce. When I begin to understand the purpose and place of suffering, then I am able to endure those sufferings because I know that they have an outcome. I know that they have an end purpose. Some people spend their life wasting their sorrows. Because they never learn, they never develop, they never allow those things that God allowed into their life to help them become wiser or or closer to Him. A wise man allows suffering to produce its purpose in his or her life. Suffering adds what one writer said, the grace notes of life. Amen. Kindness, compassion, sympathy, understanding, love, forgiveness. Those are the grace notes of life that we all need. 
But I'm telling you, you can't know anything about those things until you've had to suffer a little while. And then you realize how good it is when people care for your soul. When people are reaching out to you, people are praying for just a hand on your shoulder. When you're in a dark valley could mean the most. And just a word, just a kind, I have confidence in you. I so appreciate your walk with God is the shot in the arm that you need. It's just looking up and seeing somebody in service. And you know what they've been through. You know the battles that they've had to fight physically just to get to the house of God. But to see them there with their hands lifted up worshiping God, that in itself is a ministry all its own. Because they are showing you how to translate your suffering into something that is called triumph. And how to take your crown and make it uh, or your thorns and make it a crown. It's taking the adversities of your life and allowing God to work out in your life the things that they're designed. Designed to be. There are four things that Peter mentioned here that are designed to be accomplished when I suffer. Number one is the word, he, he said make you perfect, but the word literally is restores. One of the things that suffering does in my life is that it restores. It mends what has been broken in my life. The word literally is speaking of nets that are being mended or a bone that is being set that's been fractured. It means to supply that which is missing. Suffering repairs the weakness of a person's character and adds greatness that is not there because of what he has had to go through. A broken bone many times is a stronger bone because of what it's had to endure. That's hard for us to imagine. But God uses that suffering to restore things. There are things that are broken in our life and the only way God can fix it and mend that break and make us stronger in those weak places is for us to suffer a while. Amen. Number two, suffering is designed by God to establish you, not to destroy you. It's not made... God doesn't allow you to suffer so he can see what your breaking point is. He allows me to suffer so I can see where my strength is. Amen. I watched them. One of the places we were at a few years ago, they were blowing glass vessels and there were two furnaces. One of them was had a big sign above it and it told what the temperature was. And when they take that that molten glass and they put it in that first furnace, it helps, they begin to shape, it allows them to shape that vessel into the design they wanted. But they made the statement for this vessel to become a perfected vessel, it has to go in a hotter furnace than this first one. And what God allows us to go through sometimes in the heat of life 
is not meant to destroy us, but it is meant to bring out of us the very best there is in us and to help us realize that we can overcome this. This is not going to destroy me. It wasn't designed to destroy me. It was designed to establish me. The tempered steel, fire tempers steel to toughen it, not weaken it. Amen. Suffering will either make you collapse or it will build character. One of the two. And you decide. Number three, suffering is designed to strengthen you. Everybody say strengthen you. It is to fill you with strength. It prevents weakness and a spiritually, pardon the term, flabby life. Suffering tones the muscles up. That's a better way to put it. Amen. Suffering is something to become stronger. There is something decidedly precious about a faith that has come through pain and suffering and is stronger now than it was before it entered. And that's what suffering was designed to do, was to perfect. Amen. To perfect. To strengthen. The wind will extinguish a weak flame, but it will fan a strong one. No one knows what his or her faith means until it's tried in the furnace of affliction. And then you discover it can take the heat. Amen. It can take a beating and keep on ticking. Amen. The three Hebrew boys were thrown into a fire that should have consumed them immediately because it killed the soldiers that brought them near it. And yet all it did for them was burn away the stuff that they didn't need so they could enjoy the presence of God in a furnace. All that it did, it didn't even singe their clothes. They didn't even have the smell of smoke. All it did was burn those cords that had them bound so they could have a little victory party there in hell <laughs> or there in the furnace, wherever it was. And that's what, what, that's what suffering is designed. It is to show the enemy that you cannot destroy my child. You cannot destroy my son or my daughter. And so when God allows suffering to come into my life, He is not letting that come because I've done something wrong or because I've sinned or because I've failed God or many of the other reasons that we try to excuse suffering for. And when we do that, we miss the purpose that God allowed it to come into our life. He allowed it to come so that it would strengthen me. So that it will help me to realize that I can stand anything. Amen. I can stand gossip. I can stand hatred. I can stand Facebook. I can, I can stand nasty emails. I can stand text messages. Amen. Because that the whole purpose of me going through this was to prove to you that you can take it. Amen. And then the last thing that Peter said is that it settles you. It settles you. 
The word means to lay a foundation. Something that cannot be shaken. What God is doing through my suffering is taking out of my life all of the things that do not matter. The peripheral, the the stuff, the fluff, so that all that remains is all that really matters. You know when tragedy comes, it's one of the most sobering moments in life. And I believe one of the things that it does is make us acutely aware of what really matters. When you're laying in the hospital and the doctors are saying, you have 15 minutes, we're fixing to take him back for open heart surgery. Sudden, all those arguments that you've had a day or two before don't matter. All the, the, the stock options, not that they're not important, but at that moment, you know, I haven't seen anybody yet take their wealth with them. Use it for what you can here. But just understand, when that day comes, we're all going the same way. Naked we came into the world and naked we're going to leave. That means we're not, we didn't bring anything into this life. We're not going to take anything out of this life but our soul and ourselves. And I want to make sure it's in good health and good order. But when those moments happen, there's a lot of stuff that doesn't matter. We're not, we're not frustrated about things. We're not worried about things. It simplifies life to the things that really matters and it drives us back to the bedrock of living. And that needs to happen to us more often than it does because we get intoxicated on a lot of stuff that we think is necessary. But all it is is a distraction. It just takes us away from doing what we need to do and what we ought to do. So instead of us fighting God's hand, let's let's just let His hand work on us. Because His hand is on me. I've humbled myself under His mighty hand. That means He has the authority to move me wherever He wants and to do with me whatever He wants to do. One of the statements I made younger in my life, I would never pastor in Houston, Texas. You didn't think I'd say that, but I